I had the opportunity to be with a group of people a few weeks ago, and they all are part of different times in my life. And the one common thread through all of these people is they'd all at some point in time had come down and been on a team that worked with us when we were in the field with Canadian Baptist Ministries. And we got talking about all of the various excitement that we had had, the challenges we'd had, the day that I was driving along with a team of people and square on hit a dog, and I had all these weeping people in the back of the truck, and beside me was my pastor giggling. And it was just one of those moments where I was reminded that we all feel things differently. And as we come into these changing times and it feels like something is changing, and we've been talking about this for a while, but but something seems to be shifting in the wind a little bit. And we got to talking about the way the different people on these mission teams would respond. And I got to thinking about the way I'd seen even other field staff respond to the reality on the ground that they were confronted with. And I would often see, kind of between these two poles, guilt on one side and almost a sense of superiority on the other. See, the guilt was, I have so much, and you have nothing, and I feel guilty about that. And so they would seek to, to kind of try and solve this problem out of this sense of guilt. And that never, ever went well. And the other side of that was a sense of superiority. I have more than you because I'm better, and you need me. And that also never, ever went well. I would also see two poles with the poor. On one side, we would see shame. That they were receiving these great gifts. They felt inferior. They would often defer. Because you're wealthy and from North America, you must know better. Or I would see on the other pole a sense of pride. I reject you. I don't need help. And this conflict would begin to exist. Where I saw things always go well is when humility ruled. When those coming and giving and those receiving came together with a sense of humility, it always seemed to go much better. And over my time, I've come to see this as a place where grace and desperate need meet. And God is in the center of it. We've been going through the story of Isaiah And we started off with Isaiah coming to terms with his own brokenness, his own need. 
And instead of a, a, a sense of shame or a sense of pride, he chose humility. And God didn't come in with, a, a, with this overwhelming, crushing rebuke for him. He brought grace and he brought healing. And it was that place where that grace and that desperate need met. And at the center, Isaiah was utterly transformed because God was there. Of course, the people did not heed the warnings that Isaiah was giving, and that led to a crushing of Jerusalem. And there was a hope for a while that that Hezekiah was this coming Messiah, and of course, it didn't work out. They were looking at the wrong source of light, and they ended up in exile. And in the midst of that point, in the midst of that sense of loss, where I'm sure they were struggling with shame and perhaps pride, guilt, maybe even a sense of superiority at being God's people, all of this mixed emotion. But Isaiah calls them out and calls them to this place of humility and need. And then one of the passages that we're going to speak on today was the passage that Jesus picked up and Jesus claimed. It's the passage of the Messiah, the Anointed One. And one day, in a room in Nazareth where they worshipped, the synagogue, they come in, Jesus takes the scroll and he unwinds it, and he gets to this passage in Isaiah. And I invite you this morning to imagine that you're sitting there on the bench. It's worn smooth from the numbers of people over the many years who've sat faithfully and Sabbath, heard the scrolls as they've been read, Listen to the teaching of the rabbis, lifting up petition to God under the oppressive regime of Rome. And these words are spoken. That place where grace and desperate need meet. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing the cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them, though they have been deserted for many generations. 
Foreigners will be your servants. They will, be, they will feed your flocks and plow your fields and tend your vineyards. You will be called priests of the Lord, ministers of God. You will feed on the treasures of the nations and boast in their riches. Instead of shame and dishonor, you will enjoy a double share of honor. You will possess a double portion of prosperity in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice and hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully reward my people for their suffering and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be recognized and honored among the nations. Everyone will realize they are the people the Lord has blessed. I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding, or a bride with her jewels. The sovereign Lord will show his justice to the nations of the world. Everyone will praise him. His righteousness will be like a garden in early spring with plants springing up everywhere. Can you imagine? You've been waiting and waiting and waiting for that. And this one you know comes in, reads this and says, Today in your hearing, this is being fulfilled. I don't know what I would feel. Maybe some hope. Maybe not quite daring to hope. Maybe some doubt. But Jesus comes into the midst of this place where need is so present. He brings this grace. God is right there in the middle of it. And he comes to bring good news to the poor. Lisa was talking during worship praise that so much poverty now you can't go very far in most of our inner cities without bumping in to abject poverty in one of the wealthiest nations on the planet. One of the wealthiest nations in the history of the planet. And Jesus brings good news to the poor. Jesus has come and he claims this mantle of the anointed one where he comes to bring comfort and to proclaim freedom. Comfort to those who are brokenhearted, who are struggling with a burden, who have a great need. Freedom to those who are trapped in some kind of bondage. For those who mourn, the time of the Lord's favor has come. This is jubilee. And in the story of Israel, in their constitution, the law of the land is once every 50 years. So at once in each and every one of our lives, there is freedom placed over the entire nation. Debts are forgiven. Land is restored. Slaves are freed. And there's the giant reset on the entire economy of the Israel people, Israeli people. I can't help but hope 
Because I think sometimes we need the year of the Lord's favor on our land. We need a giant reset where debts are forgiven, land is restored, slaves are freed, and hope is returned because we cannot separate the needs, the physical reality of people from their spiritual condition. We are body, soul, and spirit. And Jesus comes into the midst, opens the scroll, and deals directly by claiming this passage, I have come to bring freedom and restoration. To bring praise instead of despair. And in the midst of that, he calls us. He says, you will be priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. He takes the broken, those on the margins, those in despair, those who have lost hope, and not only rescues you, but he restores you and invites you into the family business. You will be called priests and ministers, each and every one of you. He's making an everlasting covenant. He brings a new promise. And with that new promise, we are left in a state of utter hopefulness. That regardless of what happens, regardless of what transpires, this covenant will not be broken. And we can live in that hope that we will be recognized and honored among the nations. And everyone will realize that we are the people the Lord has blessed. It doesn't always feel like that, does it? I hear story after story after story of encroachment, religious institutions finding themselves increasingly at odds with a society that does not see the value of the church or of the institutions the church has supported. It does not feel like we are a people that the world sees as blessed. But this is the promise. And so we can live without that anxiety gnawing at us and know that this covenant will come to pass. The sovereign Lord will show his justice to the nations of the world and everyone will praise him. It's a promise. Sometimes it's easy to forget. Sometimes, like those who heard that for the first time, the reaction was really strong and they ended up trying to kill Jesus that day. How many times in my own life have I taken those promises and I've pushed them away? You see, we're being called to follow the Master's lead. To allow ourselves to be part of something bigger. 
Because Jesus comes in, the anointed one, the Messiah, and he's not pointing out how bad these people are. He's not pointing out their great need is their own fault. He's coming and he's pointing to the coming rescue and he's pointing to a better way. Not about breaking them down, but building them up. Not scattering them, but drawing them together into a united community under God, part of his family, with a new purpose and a restored reality. That's the promise. That's the covenant. It's not about restoring them back to a broken state of being. It's about realizing a transformed life, becoming a community of mission and purpose. The Messiah, the Lord's anointed one, brings good news to the humble. Care for the brokenhearted. Proclamation of release to the captives. Comfort to those who mourn. And then... Those who were once lowly, those who were once lost, become the ones who are the priests and the ministers of the Most High God, the God who loves justice. See, Jesus claims this mantle. And this means when we follow Jesus, we can be delivered from that idolatrous guilt and condemnation. We do not need to get trapped between those poles of shame or pride, guilt or arrogance. But we can embrace humility because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus breaks down the power of death and makes possible a completely new life where we can actually live differently. It's about concrete change. And we're challenged by Isaiah to follow the master's lead and embrace this calling. And that's what it means to live this story. This is about restoration and rescue, but not just as individuals. The entire thread of Isaiah is about a restored community under the grace of the one who comes to rescue a restored community. So I've been reflecting on this over the last few weeks. What do we mean by community? What does that word draw up within us? What might be the expectations that we hold for a community? Specifically a restored community. And I asked myself, are we a community? Or are we just a group of people who show up at the same time on Sunday and sing together and listen to some guy ramble from the front for a while and like Frank, try to desperately stay awake? I think this is a fair question, and it's certainly not meant to be one that brings guilt or shame. See, this theme is hidden in plain sight in the subtlety of Isaiah's words. 
God doesn't bring justice or, or, or judgment on Lisa. He's bringing it across the entirety of the people of God. He rescues the people. He judges the people. But we live in this incredibly individualistic society, and you have tolerated my random thoughts over the last four weeks about societal health and civilizational decline and the stages of individualism and societal projection, and you've managed to not snore so loud while I was talking that I was able to not be interrupted in that. But I want to bring this all together for us today. We live in a world that is focused on me, that is reactive to all the other things happening in our world. We are entitled, we are regressing, we are not a happy people. We are ones who need rescue. So what does it mean to be a restored community? Paul calls it the flesh. The flesh works against relationship and community. A society in decline, an individualism on ascension, a society picking up the anxiety from one another is generally not going to be one that holds together. And these passions and desires, these self-centered emotions, wreak havoc on our relationships and tend to pull at the threads of community and tear us apart. I love the words of Todd Wilson. He's a pastor and an author. And he says, while we would like to avoid the mess and enjoy deep and intimate community without all the struggles... God says that it is in the very process of working through the mess that intimacy and true community is found. So this is the audacious thing about God's plan, I think. While the world is pulling at the threads of community, God takes those very moments and uses them to build community. Because the more I regress, the more I get anxious, the more things become chaotic around me, the more I'm desperately in need of people around me who get me. And as I embrace restoration, as I increasingly embrace the grace where my need is, and God comes into the middle of that, and I allow God to humble me, the more I want to tell all of you about the freedom that comes in Jesus. This is the story of Isaiah. It's the story of reversals and progress. It's the story where good news is brought to the humble and brokenhearted. And what Isaiah says, what the New Testament repeats, is that God wants us to share an intimate relationship with him. And he wants this for us in a way that we cannot do for ourselves. It is about restoration and transformation. You and I can't white-knuckle and grip and change and become better people. 
We can only embrace this grace that comes into the midst of our need where God is present in the center, bringing about a reformed life. It's rooted in two overwhelmingly positive points of Isaiah. It's about accepting our own need for grace and forgiveness and looking solely to Jesus for that forgiveness. That is the message that Isaiah brings. That this Messiah, Christ, the Anointed One, calls us out of bondage into a new freedom for His glory, restoration, transformation, and mission. And the risk is that we will look at these passages only from the perspective of our individualism, but we do not live in isolation. We cannot live in isolation. Our family likes to have waffles every once in a while on a Saturday morning. And the other day we were eating waffles and Caleb with his mountain of syrup. We started talking about what it would take to make a waffle. Because we prayed, bless the hands that prepared it. And we started just talking about what it would take to make a waffle. And we, the numbers started to climb into the hundreds the person who made the waffle maker, the team that delivered the waffle maker, the team that grew the food, ground the food, brought all the resources to us, the grocery store that housed it and put it on the shelf, the car manufacturer who brought the car, the person who brought me fuel so that I could put it in, the, the, the gas attendant that fueled my car. What, is this the 50s? Who, who has their car filled by a gas attendant anymore? <laughs> Pastor's license, I can tell the story any way I want. The reality is we physically cannot possibly live in isolation alone. We need people around us. That's just for everyday life, how much more it is to walk in faith. We're never meant to do this alone. Jesus wants us to be in community. But he wants us to be in a community that prays and gives praise together. A community that cares and supports one another, seeks justice, lives out kindness, mercy, engages in mission to a world around us, both in word and deed, and studies the word of God together and embraces a life that works out our junk and helps one another carry that to the trash. In other words, a disciple-making community. And that's what Jesus has told us to do and has told us to be. And that is what I want us to be. In fact, I am clearing my entire schedule this fall to focus on the task of figuring out how we as a community embrace discipleship, one another, together, leading each other, growing each other, helping one another, discover our junk, and take out our trash. It's where I want us to go. All of the things that are in the survey, these are wonderful programs, and I, like everybody else, loves a good program. But if our programs only serve to entertain or distract, I think we miss the point. It's not about making the church an all-consuming central part of our lives. 
It's not about overwhelming you with requests to volunteer. It's not about engaging you and saying you should drop everything else in your life and only serve the church because that, my dear family, would be self-serving on my part. This is not about making me look better because I'm pastoring a bigger, more vibrant church. I don't care about that. What I care about is that we are making Jesus the center of this community. And as a community, we are growing together and discipling one another. And it will involve learning together what God's word says. It will involve acts of justice and mercy. It will involve coming together and having breakfast I'm grateful to, to Dave and to Frank and to Dick who cooked for us yesterday morning and the Sunday school team came together and we ate good pancakes and sausages and fruit and we talked about Jesus and ministry and the kids and I don't know if we solved any problems but boy, oh boy, was that delicious and it was good. Guilt or superiority, shame or pride, wherever you're at, I just invite you in. Embrace the humility that Jesus Christ offers. That place where our need and his grace and love and presence come together and where he is central. It's an invitation from Isaiah to join in, to be part of a restored community, inviting others to be part of a restored community, rejecting the things that pull at the threads. And they're going to happen. We have an enemy that does not want us to be disciples. And when we get offended with one another, that's when it gets all torn apart. Guilt, shame, pride, arrogance no it's when we embrace humility it's a message of rescue a message of transformation and a message of hope in this four-week journey through isaiah we have seen a community that suffered it suffered in its own sin it suffered in its own brokenness and we've seen how God has accompanied that community through death and resurrection. We've seen how God raised that community up to do his work in cooperation and collaboration with the Spirit and with one another. And we have seen how this all points to Jesus, who is the one who fulfilled the ultimate rescue to bring hope to a world of exile today. My prayer for us, my prayer for this sermon, my prayer for this congregation, my prayer for this coming ministry season is that we would embrace this, this, this good news and that we would grow as a community, grow as disciples of Jesus, and we would be committed to one another in hope and love, grow in hope and love and ultimately grow in Christ so that we may do all that he has called us and that we would do it together. I invite you into that prayer with me this morning.
We may not be big, but we're small. Think about what God has done with mustard seeds. May we be the mustard seed that grows and grows and grows. May we be the yeast that influences and expands. May we be a people so committed to Christ and one another that there is an intoxicating feel of wanting to be part of it. Not for our own sake, but for the sake of those who need the hope of Jesus Christ. That's the invitation. And let's pray. Lord, you know where we're at. You know what each of us is carrying today. You know, Lord, where we are with you and whether we have embraced you. You know, Lord, the things that distract us, the things that have offended us, the things that bother us, the anxiety that we carry. And you do not stand in condemnation of any of that. But Lord, you invite us into restoration. You invite us into healing. You invite us into transformation, into concrete change. So Lord, I pray for us today. I pray for this coming season of ministry that we would once more step in and step up to this call and this challenge to embrace you, to embrace one another, and to allow your spirit to grow us. Lord, I thank you for this community. I thank you, Lord, how friendly this community is. Lord, I would ask you to help us to move from friendliness to friendship. Not that we become overwhelmed by all the things we need to do, but to feel overjoyed about being together and in one another's presence as we lead each other to you. Lord, we thank you for the words of Isaiah and for this really short survey that, that can't possibly do justice to this. But Lord, I pray this would be an encouragement and an invitation to dig deeper into this prophet's profound, profound influence on our faith. And ultimately, Lord, I thank you that you sent Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, and came with grace into the place of our need. In humility, bringing humility. And there you are, Lord, in the center. May we feel grateful, and may we embrace this profoundly good news this morning. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.